Have you been following what's been happening in the Anglican Church this past week? They were voting on a motion to change the marriage canon so that same-sex marriages would be blessed across the denomination. A friend of ours sent us a text message on early Tuesday morning with a link to the Globe and Mail's, the national newspaper's report titled, Anglican Church of Canada rejects same-sex marriage amendment, will not add policy to national laws. After skimming the Globe and Mail report, I wrote back a text saying, a razor-thin result that, although we can be thankful, still raises concerns about the state of the Christian church in Canada. In parentheses, I put, see Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to the end of the chapter. Our friend sent a final email text. Exactly, Geo. Very frightening with what the head of the church had to say. This is a marginal victory. And here, according to the Globe and Mail's report, is what the head of the Anglican Church wrote. The failure of the motion to change the marriage canon will be deeply painful for LGBTQ2 plus members of our church and for those beyond the church who look to this step as a sign of hope and inclusion. Reverend Linda Nichols, the first woman chosen to lead the church, wrote in a Facebook post. But here's the part that I found most concerning. To pass the resolution required yes votes from two-thirds of each of the three orders, lay, clergy, and bishops. 80% of lay delegates voted to adopt the motion, as did 73% of the clergy. But the bishops were two votes short of what was needed to enter the proposal into law. See what I mean by a razor-thin victory? The reality is that you and I are living in a culture that is becoming increasingly intolerant to genuine biblical Christianity. And that shouldn't catch us by surprise. Although I think North American Christians, for the most part, have been lulled to sleep through years of ease, acceptance, and tolerance of our biblical values and convictions. But these things are changing, and rapidly, I might add. A couple of weeks ago, I just finished reading the book of 2 Timothy in my own personal time alone with God. Listen to these words written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor serving the church in Ephesus. They're found at the beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 3. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, 
malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. I would suggest that avoiding these kinds of people is becoming increasingly difficult in the culture in which you and I live and work and play. And as a result, those of us who would dare to follow Jesus will become increasingly obvious. It will be harder and harder for us to fly under the radar, to go unnoticed in the way we live, the choices we make, our actions and reactions, our values and our convictions. They will set us apart from the majority. We will be vulnerable. And for Jesus and his closest ministry companions, that meant the world would hate them, persecute them, unsynagogue them, and eventually put them to death. I wish I could promise that will never happen to you and I. In the episode that we want to focus on this morning, the Apostle John is presenting a comparison. He contrasts two interrogations. Interrogations can be intimidating. Both Jesus and Simon Peter find themselves being interrogated by Jesus' opponents. The kind of people who would love to hate them, persecute them, unsynagogue them, and even put them to death. Neither Jesus nor Simon Peter were among friends. And their interrogation took place concurrently. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 18. The comparison uncovers differences that will increase our appreciation of Jesus' not my will, but your will be done commitment. And don't forget John chapter 18, verse 4, as you turn there. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. He knew what was coming, and yet he remained steadfast. He stayed the course. He was determined to fulfill the mission the Father had given him to do. However, in addition to developing a greater appreciation for Jesus, Simon Peter, in contrast, will remind us of our own feebleness when it comes to facing those who question our faith. Please, if you're able to stand with me for the reading from God's Word, we'll begin reading at verse 12 of John chapter 18. Beginning at verse 12 then. So the Roman cohort and the commander of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father and lord of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews 
that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are, not, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews came together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. And when he said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, you are a God who desires to be known. You've revealed yourself in creation. In the words of the psalmist, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. But you have also revealed yourself completely in Jesus. God, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And finally, you have preserved your self-revelation in these scriptures, all scriptures inspired for, by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man and woman of God 
may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Father, may that purpose be fulfilled in our lives today as we study these final hours of the life of Jesus on earth, as reported by the Apostle John. It is in his name that we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Interrogations are intimidating. Did you notice how the Apostle John presents this contrast between Jesus and Simon Peter? Look over that section again. It's like a two-act play consisting of two scenes in each act. Or if it was a boxing match, we could say that it was a two-rounder. Part one begins in verse 12 and ends in verse 18. Second part begins, or round two begins in verse 19 and goes to the end of verse 27. And within each of these rounds, the spotlight focuses first on Jesus and then turns to Simon Peter. It's a back and forth two-rounder, an obvious comparison or contrast. Let's look again at round one. Jesus is in the spotlight in verses 12 to 14. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Allow me to remind you that a Roman cohort is typically consisting of 600 armed soldiers. And there are also officers of the Jews accompanying this Roman cohort. Interesting. Jews and Gentiles, sworn enemies, combining forces to ensure the arrest of Jesus. And this was a large group that followed Judas out of the city of Jerusalem, down through the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and into the Garden of Gethsemane. How many do you think this worship center would hold if it was completely full, standing room only? What do you think? About 250? So if we filled this room to complete capacity twice, that would still be short. A conservative number of the men that went out to take Jesus captive. Jesus was arrested and bound and brought in for questioning. He's brought first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas that year, meaning the year that Jesus was put to death. So here we have Jesus being delivered to the religious heavyweights of the day. In the next few hours, Jesus would endure no less than six trials or interrogations. Three before the religious courts and three before the civil courts. His appearance before Annas is the first of the six. 
This one would be similar to bringing a suspect into the station for an interrogation before they're charged with a crime. Annas would conduct his interrogation of Jesus before Jesus appeared before Caiaphas, who was the high priest, and then before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would have functioned much like our Supreme Court of Canada in Judaism. And it was the high priest who presided over the Sanhedrin. In other words, Caiaphas. So let me ask, why do you think the Apostle John included verse 14 in this episode? Flip with me back to John chapter 11. Allow me to begin reading at verse 47. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So John is reminding us, the readers of his gospel, of something that we already know. As far as Caiaphas is concerned and the Sanhedrin, well, the decision has already been made. Jesus is guilty. He must die. At this point, they're not seeking the truth. They were seeking a way to put Jesus to death. And in so doing, in their minds, they would be saving the nation of Israel by preserving their religious system and unknowingly fulfilling the plans and purposes of God. Jesus was arrested and bound and brought to face the religious elite. Now the spotlight turns to Simon Peter. Look at verse 15 to 18. Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, 
and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. So Peter is following Jesus, along with another unnamed disciple. There are all kinds of speculation who that unnamed disciple might be. I read an article recently that named Lazarus as a potential author to the Gospel of John. And certainly as we reflect on this relationship he had with the high priest, the familiarity there, Lazarus could certainly have been the unnamed disciple. Remember, they lived in Bethany, which is just two miles from Jerusalem, just over the Mount of Olives, on the other side of the Mount of Olives. We have this small town, Bethany. In fact, John chapter 11, verse 19 reads, And many of the Jews had come out to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Lazarus had died, you'll remember, and they've come to console the sisters. This family was well-known and well-connected to the Jewish community in the city of Jerusalem. Perhaps the unnamed disciple was Lazarus. But traditionally, it has been thought that the beloved disciple named elsewhere in this gospel account and the unnamed disciple here in John chapter 18 was in fact the same person and was indeed the Apostle John himself, the author of this fourth gospel. So the true identity of this unnamed disciple remains a mystery. And really, we don't need to know who it was. What we do know is that it was through his influence that Simon Peter gained access to the high priest's courtyard. And without his intervention, Simon Peter would have been left on the outside. But it was as Simon Peter slipped past that slave girl who kept the door that he was questioned about his relationship with Jesus. Maybe it was the way he was dressed, the look on his face, the lack of eye contact, or the disciple who had made access available to Peter, who, who appealed to the slave girl on Simon's behalf. Who knows? But something caught that slave girl's attention. And two, in the early 2000s, four of us left from Oakville, Ontario to do some, a mission survey uh, for a mission organization in Haiti. One of our group was a Haitian Canadian. He had been living in Canada for probably 15, 20 years by that time. But he was the lead of the team going down to Haiti and could speak Creole. He confessed that he did not like traveling through the United States because he always had trouble getting by those pesky TSA officers. Our departing flight was a direct, right from Toronto into Haiti, so that was not a problem. But our return trip required a quick stop in Miami where we would change planes. Sure enough, as we were making our way through the Miami terminal, all of a sudden, 
Wesley went missing. He had been fingered, taken out of the crowd, pulled out of the line for some interrogation. In the same way, Simon Peter caught the attention of a slave girl. Her question was framed in such a way that she was expecting a negative answer. Are you not also one of this man's disciples? Are you? After all, who in their right mind would dare to follow Jesus right into the high priest's courtyard? Unless, of course, you were known to the high priest. Or unless you had an inflated view of yourself. John chapter 13, verse 37. Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. But in this setting, when interrogated by a slave girl, his answer was short and simple. I am not. Peter followed and gained entrance to the high priest's courtyard where he was questioned by a slave girl. Let's take a moment. Contrast those two scenes in round one. In the one column, put Jesus. In the other side, put Simon Peter. Jesus was arrested and bound, forced to go to the high priest. Peter, on the other hand, followed at a safe distance. Jesus was brought by arresting officials in a Roman cohort, over 600 men. Peter gained access by a favored friend. Jesus faced Ananias, 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 representing the, the highest religious authority of the land. Peter faced a slave girl, representing the lowest of the low. Not only was she a slave, but it was a girl. Jesus said nothing when he could have done anything. Peter denied being a follower of Jesus and chose to stand with Jesus' enemy for his own personal comfort, warming himself. Interrogations are intimidating. Let's move to round two. Jesus once again in the spotlight at the beginning of verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer a high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, 
Why do you strike me? So Annas set him about, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. This is a pretty straightforward section of the episode. Jesus is questioned by Annas. His answer is direct, straightforward, and honest. But as a result of what he said, perhaps how he said it, we're not told, he was struck by one of the officials. Jesus challenged his striker. Annas, in the end, sent him still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, who presided over the Sanhedrin, that supreme court. He had nothing more to add. In the end, Annas' interrogation proved to be benign. Allow me to clear up just what may be a little bit of confusion here regarding the, the high priest. Is Annas the high priest or is Caiaphas the high priest? Verse 19 seems to indicate Annas is the high priest that's asking the questions. And yet in verse 24 presents Annas sending Jesus to Caiaphas, the high priest. So which is it? The answer is yes. According to Jewish law, the high priest was a lifetime appointment. But once the Romans began occupying Palestine, they didn't like the concentration of power in one person for a prolonged period of time. So Annas was actually high priest from AD 6 to AD 15 when the Romans said, that's enough. And they deposed him. But respecting the Jews, they decided to use Annas' family, his four sons, plus his son-in-law, Caiaphas, to be the high priest. And clearly, Annas is still functioning as high priest in the mind of the Jews. Perhaps a little bit of first century Palestine office politics going on here because it seems that nothing goes to the high priest that doesn't go through Annas, first of all. So Jesus' response to Annas assured him that he was who he was. There was no secret message that he was delivering to his disciples in private. His public and private life, his teaching, they were all identical. There would be no surprises. Annas and his allies could do a thorough investigation of Jesus' life in order to dig up some dirt, and they would find absolutely nothing to discredit him or implicate him. He was who he was, the Christ, the Son of God, and did what he did and spoke what he spoke, both in public and in private, 24-7, perfectly consistent. Without sin, he had nothing to hide. And I suppose sending him to Caiaphas, still bound but with nothing more, was an omission of sorts. Jesus, as far as Annas was concerned, remained above reproach. Jesus was questioned, told the truth, was physically assaulted, and did nothing to incriminate himself. The spotlight now turns back 
to Simon Peter, beginning at verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Still warming himself at the fire, Peter is now questioned by those with whom he stood. The they, in verse 25, were the slaves and the officers of verse 18. So now, it is more than just a curious slave girl fulfilling her responsibilities as a doorkeeper. The question is almost identical. They too ask the question expecting a negative response. He's already denied it once. This time, the denial comes much more easy. And even with conviction in his voice, I am not. Sin is like that, you know. Repeat it often enough, and eventually you can do it without any kind of remorse whatsoever. Remember the Lord's warning to Cain way back at the beginning in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7? Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. That was still true in Peter's day, and it's still true today. Sin desires you, and it desires me. Peter's initial desire made it easier for him to deny any affiliation with Jesus the second time. Sin is crouching at the door. You must master it, or it will master you. And then another slave steps forward. Perhaps it was Malchus's cousin, maybe a stepbrother, who knows. But they were related. And he had been there in the garden earlier when Jesus was arrested. He saw Peter slice off Malchus's ear. Look back at verse 10. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave name, slave's name was Malchus. Peter must have been starting to squirm at this point. Sweaty palms, flushed face, his ears starting to burn. This question was more accusatory than a question. Did I not see you in the garden with him? And again, Peter denies any affiliation with Jesus. And a rooster in the distance begins to crow. I like how this writer captured the moment. In this instance, Peter not only denies being Jesus' disciple, Peter denies being in the garden. Peter denies any relationship with Jesus. Peter denies all links to the disciples. Peter denies 
what Judas acknowledges that he knows the garden, the disciples, and Jesus. And at that moment, the cock crowed. And Jesus' words to Peter come true. Listen as I read again from Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. And it happened just as Jesus said it would. Peter was questioned, denied any association with Jesus, and fulfilled Jesus' prophecy. Let's continue our chart, our comparison. What do you see, what are the differences you see here in round two between Jesus and Simon Peter? Jesus was questioned by Annas. Peter was questioned by slaves and officers. And then an eyewitness slave. I'm not sure it was a question, more like an accusation. Jesus was physically assaulted. Simon Peter perhaps felt threatened in the environment that he was in. Jesus stays strong and courageous. Peter appears weak and cowardly. Jesus is a committed truth teller. Peter lies to save himself. Interrogations are intimidating. Jesus, in the garden, responded, I am he. Peter, in the high priest's courtyard, lies and answers, I am not. But let's not be too hard on Peter. We are all way too familiar with this fear of man looking for the approval of others' dilemma. Whether it's abandoning an old friend in order to accept an invitation to hang out with the cool, popular people, or choosing to look the other way to avoid becoming involved. The personal cost seems too high, physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally, whatever. We're all familiar with these kinds of denials. Sometimes we are the victim, at other times the perpetrator. Let's talk about some implications of this episode in the life and ministry of Jesus. How does this story intersect with your life? To whom in the story do you find yourself identifying? Why did John include this episode in his account of the life and ministry of Jesus? And why did he leave out so many details that Matthew, Mark, and Luke included in theirs, in their account? Let me say, first of all, that this story is not about Peter. And therefore, it's not about you and I either. 
I'm not suggesting that we can't learn from Peter's mistakes. That this story has, should not cause us to hit the pause button of our lives and, and think about our own fickleness when it comes to defending our faith or proclaiming our faith. We should examine our hearts to see those ways in which we too deny Jesus and then take initiatives that will grow our confidence and our courage, help us get by our, our fear of man or seeking the approval of others. Jesus was clear, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. A sobering thought. Peter's denial was a serious misstep. But John tells us why he wrote this Gospel of John in John chapter 20, verse 31. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So how does this episode help us to believe that Jesus is the Christ? Here's a couple of ideas that I'll leave with you to reflect on. These are not the only two, and I'm certainly there's more, and you can find more, but here's a couple for us to get started with. First, Jesus is faithful. And he remains faithful regardless of the circumstances. Through the tough times, betrayal, desertion, detention, and denial. Listen to this explanation. To, to submit to ill treatment quietly when we have no power to resist is submission that is both graceful and wise. But to voluntarily suffer when we have the power to prevent it and to suffer for a world of unbelieving and ungodly sinners, enemies of God, unasked and unthanked, this is a line of conduct which surpasses our human understanding, especially in light of Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, where Jesus claims, or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? What does that tell us? He could have called. He could have made the call to his heavenly Father, and 12 legions of angels would have come to his defense. A legion of Roman soldiers is between five and 6,000. So 12 of them would mean 60,000 angels. If you want to catch the glimpse, just a glimpse, of the power of these angelic beings, I'd invite you to look at Romans chapter 4 through to Romans, or Revelation chapter 4 through to Revelation chapter 19. They describe what angels are capable of, and it is terrifying. And yet Jesus, with that kind of access, betrayed and deserted by his closest ministry companions, 
stood bound in front of Annas, was physically assaulted, knowing that Simon Peter was denying any association with him, remained steadfastly committed to what his father had given him to do. Jesus' faithfulness is independent of ours. When we prove to be faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. This episode highlights the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Secondly, Jesus is truthful. He is a truth teller, regardless of the circumstances or in whose company he's in. Remember, these were the highest religious officials of the land. He's never going to lie, deceive, or mislead. In a world where truth is, as, is just becoming a rare commodity, Jesus is 100% trustworthy. Someone has said that integrity is telling myself the truth. Honesty is telling the truth to other people. Jesus modeled both in the midst of being interrogated by the religious elite of his day, while being betrayed, deserted, and denied by his closest ministry companions. I trust these thoughts will, first of all, encourage us Jesus, faithful and truthful, regardless of our successes or failures. Additionally, I would hope and pray that it spurs us on, that we will desire to become more like him, putting ourselves in places that invite the Holy Spirit to continue his renovation work in our lives. This is the best we can do to invite the Holy Spirit's renovation of our inside life. That is how we work out our salvation, becoming more like Christ, so that these qualities, faithfulness and, and truth-telling, begin to characterize our life, become an increasing part of who we are, faithful people, day in and day out, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, steadfast in our relationship with one another, steadfast and faithful in our marriages and to our families, to the Rock Community Church, not forsaking our assembling together, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching, following in his step towards faithfulness, becoming more truthful, regardless of the circumstances or whose company we're in, will be truth-tellers, even if it costs us personally. Following in his steps so that we become people of integrity and honesty. It's not going to be easy, especially in a Christian culture that prides itself in being tolerant, except with those who are perceived to be intolerant. Interrogations are intimidating. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would follow 
in his steps. Jesus, through the interrogation, remained faithful and truthful. What a contrast when compared to Peter's performance. Behold your king, faithful and truthful. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, thank you for Jesus, for his incarnation, your one and only Son, who became a man and lived among us, a visible expression radiating your glory in the exact representation of your nature. Father, you are patient and enduring. And we, like Peter, who denied Jesus three times, are often found turning our backs on you so that we can fulfill the lust of our flesh, lust of our eyes, becoming proud of who we are or what we've accomplished or what we think we're becoming. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Forgive us, we pray. Show us a new way to live, walking boldly and passionately towards you, relying on your enablement by your spirit who indwells every genuine believer. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.